Now, um, if you look around Winchester, look around anywhere really, there's, there's loads of these kind of um, housing estates going up, loads of building going on. And when they do this kind of thing, there's always a house or two that they finish early, isn't there? And the idea is that they fill one of these houses uh, with everything as top spec, best kitchen, best kind of decor, and they invite you in. And the idea is that they're trying to sell you a dream. Imagine living here. Imagine living uh, in this place. You look out the window and it's still a big old mess and a construction site. But this house, this is what it could be like for you. And if you're a sucker, you go and you buy... No, that's not true. I mean, I'm sure these things work out really well. What I want to say is that chapter 7 is a little bit like Jesus' show home for his kingdom. His kingdom hasn't fully arrived yet. His rule isn't yet kind of recognized and established across the earth. But most of um, the time as well, that life will feel like a messy construction site... But in chapter 7, you see what it will one day be like. The the dead raised, the outcast welcomed in, feasting and joy with Jesus at the heart. You you see, if you you like, something of what Jesus was teaching about in in chapter 6 as well. The desperate coming to Jesus. The importance of living life right. We're going to see all of those things. And it's as if Jesus is saying, what I've just been teaching, let me show you a glimpse of what it looks like in practice and what one day uh, my kingdom will be like. The the show home uh, of Jesus' kingdom. And so we come to the centurion uh, and we're going to see some aspects of the kingdom in practice. The first thing we're going to see is confusion and compassion. So Jesus has just finished teaching his people about his kingdom. Who who can be part of it? What life under his rule will look like? And and so we've got some of those ideas running through our heads. If we've just read chapter 6, the kingdom is for those who are poor. Do you remember? Blessed are the poor. Those who mourn. Those who are weak. And then the very first person you meet after this, well, he kind of, on the surface... It kind of seems to be the opposite of those things. Chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, there was a centurion. And we know this centurion is wealthy. He he paid for a synagogue to be built. That must cost some money. And he's powerful. We know that he has at least 100 men under his rule and under his command. They do everything he says. And on the surface then, he doesn't look like the kind of person Jesus had in mind. He doesn't look like the weak, the poor, the mourning, the desperate. But something happens to the centurion, something that makes him desperate, something that reveals, despite his privileges, he desperately needs Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 2. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Despite his power, his wealth, his privileged position, the centurion cannot do anything to help. And he clearly held this servant in high affection. I don't think it was simply, ah, oh, he can't work for me now, he can't make money for me. It seems that he really had an affection for this servant. And all he can do is watch as this sickness progresses through his body until his servant is at the point of death. And all the money and privilege and power in the world is useless, isn't it, at that point? 
But just notice something here. Before we carry on, notice this. On the one hand, the, the, the story is all about the servant. He's dying. That's what kind of creates the need for this whole event. But on the other hand, he doesn't really say or do anything, does he? It's all about him, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really play much of a role in this story. It's like kind of playing a, a corpse in a detective drama, isn't it? On the one hand, the story is all about the dead character. But on the other hand, it doesn't really do anything. It gets a lie on the kind of table in the pathology lab. And that's it. And there's their role. Lie there. Don't speak. Don't move. In fact, if possible, don't even breathe. That's the servant's role in Luke 7. Don't move. Don't speak. In fact, don't breathe. Not really a starring role, even though it seems to be all about him. Apart from one thing he does, his sickness brings the centurion to Christ. I don't know how you feel about that. That that under his sovereign rule, Jesus ordains that this servant would get sick so that the centurion would turn to Jesus. And it's possible, isn't it, that Jesus might do the same kind of thing in our life, On the one hand, we might be like the servant. We might be the one that suffers, that loses out in some way, that struggles with sickness or or faces a personal tragedy so that those around us would be provoked to turn to Jesus. That's possible, isn't it? And imagine this. Imagine if you could even pray in those moments of hardship. Lord, I don't know why I'm going through this, all of this mess right now, but maybe, just maybe, you would use it to provoke someone to put their faith in Christ or to deepen their faith in Jesus. It would be a remarkable thing to pray, wouldn't it? On the other hand, it's possible that we are more like the centurion, that someone close to us experiences the the suffering and the tragedy, and, and we love them, we hold them in high affection. And it hurts to see them suffer. Lord, why would you let this happen to them? Why let them suffer like this? And what if part of the answer is so that you would turn to trust me in a deeper way? Maybe we need to see a bit more of that happening. In his sovereign rule, the Lord may bring sickness to someone close to us for our sake, so that our hearts will be turned to Christ. You see, the centurion turns to Christ because his servant gets sick. And that means the centurion reaches out to Jesus. And this is where the confusion starts. Because at first, his appeal to Jesus is on the basis of his worthiness. Chapter 7, verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Jesus, help this centurion. Heal his servant because he is worthy. He loves our nation. He's built a synagogue for us. He is worthy of your help, Jesus. Now, there is something that grates, isn't there, when you you hear this. 
If you've been a Christian for some time, your theology radar is probably pinging. Your kind of spidey senses are probably buzzing. We know that this isn't how it works. Jesus doesn't help us because we're worthy. He doesn't look at our record over the last 24 hours and think, sure, you can have that job you just interviewed for. You can pass the exam you've just set. You can get the house you've just offered on because of your record in these last 24 hours, because you are worthy. It doesn't work like that. Now, Jesus loves our obedience. It brings him joy when we do what is right, because it is good and it pleases him. He loves our obedience. But if you're giving money to church and you're thinking, this makes me a little bit more worthy for Jesus' help. If you're making a special effort to show patience to your kids or your spouse and you're thinking, this makes me that bit more worthy of Jesus' help. Well, look, yes, Jesus loves your obedience. But your obedience doesn't make you more worthy of his help. And there's something else that doesn't feel right about the centurion's approach. Verse 4, But when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. Do you see the basis on which they're coming? They think they need to persuade Jesus to help. They think they need to twist Jesus' arm. Let me give you some reasons why you should help Jesus. Because our assumption is you won't help kind of thing you see in children isn't it they they might come and talk to him and you know that they want something but first they rattle off this list of all the things they've done that day i've tidied my room i've picked up all the lego from around the house i've not hit my sister today can we go to mcdonald's will you help him jesus he's built us a synagogue he loves our nation will you help him but here's the thing, we, we don't need to manipulate Jesus into helping us. We don't need to twist his arm. What does Jesus say elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's the stance of, of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ready to give good things to those who ask. Don't need to twist Jesus' arm. And so there is something not right about the approach, something confused about the approach of this centurion. Jesus doesn't help us because we are worthy. Jesus doesn't need to be manipulated or persuaded into helping us. Before we move on and see the right way of approaching, look at the surprise in verse 6. So Jesus went with them. The theology of those representing the centurion, the theology of the centurion himself, was messed up. At best, it was confused. They assumed that Jesus would only help if he thought the centurion was worthy. And yet, what does Jesus do? He goes with them. You just love the compassion of Jesus. He doesn't make us sit a theology exam before we come to him with our needs. He doesn't demand that every aspect of your life be perfect in obedience 
before he will listen to us. Your theology might be a bit screwed up. Your heart might be riddled with mixed motives, but one thing you know at this moment, I need Jesus. I'm desperately in need of Jesus. And so you can pray. You don't need to get your theology all correct before you open your mouth and cry out in desperation to Christ. And for that matter, you you don't need to get your life in perfect order before you put your faith in Jesus to start with. He is compassionate to the confused and muddled in their thinking. He is compassionate to those who are wandering all over the place in their life because they are like a sheep without a shepherd. Yes, the more we learn, the more we understand, then the greater expectation on us to change our thinking and change our life. But remember this, in your moments of desperation, Jesus shows compassion to the confused. He will listen. He went with them. But things do change. Confusion in the centurion becomes amazing faith. That's our second point, amazing faith. So his first approach is confused. He, he gets Jesus wrong, but by the end, Jesus is holding up the centurion as a model, an example that we should all look to and be like. Listen to verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, the centurion, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Jesus sees this centurion's extraordinary faith. He is amazed. It is amazing faith. So what is so extraordinary about this man's faith? What has Jesus seen? I think two things. First, someone with amazing faith, they know something about themselves. I am not worthy. Before Jesus even makes it to the sick servant, the centurion has this incredible change of heart. This time he sends his friends to meet Jesus. First time he uses the Jewish leaders and maybe he's kind of trying to project an image of himself. Jesus, I'm I'm respected. I'm I'm kind of a big deal around here. Even the, the Jewish leaders respect me. But with his friends, it is the complete opposite. Verse six. The friends say, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The person with amazing faith knows something about themselves. I am not worthy. And this way of approaching Jesus, I am not worthy, I do not deserve, I'm not sure it's kind of a one-off thing. You know, when you start off as a Christian, you come to Jesus, yeah, I'm not worthy, get that. But when you've been a Christian a few years, you can drop the unworthy stuff. You don't want to be so miserable and dour all the time. But I don't think that's right, is it? Partly because of the pattern of the Bible, we are encouraged to confess our sin. Jesus teaches us to pray as we just prayed. Lord, forgive us our sins. Regularly pray that. When God's people approached him in the worship services of the Old Testament, they started with confession. I am not worthy. We don't move on from being unworthy before Jesus. 
But that doesn't make us miserable. It's the opposite, actually. You're aware that you come to Jesus unworthy. Your heart is blown away by his priceless mercy, by his generosity and kindness and goodness towards you. The Heidelberg Catechism is a a series of questions and answers written in the 16th century that that would help Christians understand the kind of the tenets of the Christian faith. We we use it occasionally. We use uh, question number one often. That is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not by my own, but I belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus. That's a great question and answer, isn't it? But question number two is good as well. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. What do you need to know in order to die with joy? To live with joy? How great my sins are and how Jesus has delivered me from them all. Every time we confess and acknowledge our sin, every time we say, Jesus, I am not worthy, we we play out the gospel again, we relive it in our hearts. We hear again the promise and the assurance of forgiveness. We appreciate again all that Jesus has done for us. And there are no more joy-giving words than to hear from Jesus, the God of all the earth. I forgive you. I accept you. So the person with amazing faith, they know something about themselves. I am not worthy. Second, amazing faith, the person with amazing faith believes something about Jesus, that he is in command. Listen again to verse 7. Centurion says, or his friends on his behalf say, Say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion is comparing his position with with Jesus' position. He is a man that can command other people and they obey him. He commands someone to go and they go, someone to come and they come. And by faith, the centurion sees that Jesus is the same only on a cosmic level. He can command not just people, but diseases and sickness and illness. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Those who can get things done just by speaking, that is top power, isn't it? The manager sits in an office and says, I want this done. They stay there, but it gets done. The child looks at their empty room and they might say, be clean. Nothing's going to happen, is it? They've got to go in there. They've got to get themselves a bit dirty, a bit messy or whatever it is. They've got to deal with it physically. But if if their mum or dad stands behind them and says, be clean or there is no dinner, miraculously, the room gets tidy. But those who can get things done with a word, they have top power. The centurion can command his soldiers with a word. And by faith, this centurion realizes that Jesus can command, well, pretty much everything by his word. He can command a disease to come, and it will come. 
and go and it will go. He can command an infection or a virus to go and it will leave a body. We're going to see that right at the end of this incident. He can command the stars at night and out they come. Amazing faith knows something about Jesus. At his command, everything obeys. And that changes the relationship between the centurion and Jesus. Because you see that there's a switch here. To start with, the centurion treats Jesus like he would have treated one of his soldiers. Verse 8, remember what he does? I tell this one come, and he comes. Well, what happened in verse 3? The centurion sends Jewish elders to get Jesus to come to him. Come, Jesus. I summon you, come. You see, to start with, the centurion treats Jesus like he would one of his soldiers. He summons Jesus, come to me, and expects Jesus to come. But when he sees how unworthy he is, when he sees how powerful Jesus is, the centurion realizes, I don't get to summon Jesus. Instead, verse 7, Lord, don't trouble yourself. It is not right for you to come at my command. I cannot summon you. You see, amazing faith recognizes that Jesus is in command, and that means we don't get to summon Jesus or make demands on him. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, we can ask and plead and cry out to Jesus for help. It's very often the Christian life, isn't it? Help that he would heal or restore or bring salvation to someone we love. You know, isn't that what we've been doing with, with Stuart and Sarah? Lord, say the word and Sarah would be healed. Praise the Lord, he has. Isn't that what we do when we are facing any des- desperate situation? Lord, we are struggling as parents. We're at the end of our tether. Say the word and our child would sleep. Say the word and their behavior would improve. Say the word and we would have better wisdom and patience and understanding to be better parents. Oh Lord, the mental torment or the physical pain, it is too much. Say the word and it would all be gone. Yeah, absolutely, we pray those prayers. Plead with Jesus and you appeal to Jesus. We don't demand. I don't command Jesus. Jesus, you must do this. I command you to heal me. And we pray our prayers in Jesus' name. If this would please you, if this would bring you honour, if this would establish your name as glorious and wonderful and worthy of praise, say the word and we would be healed. In Jesus' name we pray. Now look, I'm guessing most of us are on board with this. Of course I don't get to demand things from Jesus. He's the Lord of all the earth. He gives the commands, not me. I I obey. But here's, here's the proof of whether we really actually believe that. Are we okay if Jesus doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to? When the pain doesn't go away. When the children continue to be hard work, when I don't get the job. How I feel about Jesus in those moments, that reveals whether I truly believe he is in command. Or whether we think Jesus should obey our commands. 
there's a heartbreaking moment in King David's life. That's going to be hard for some people to listen to this, but I want us to think about it because David is a great example of this. When his newborn child is seriously unwell, and David, he prays and he fasts and he pleads with the Lord for the health of his child, but the child does not survive. And David is upset, but he accepts it. He says in 2 Samuel 12, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? If the Lord says the word and my child is healed and saved, praise be to the name of the Lord. If the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, does not say the word, praise be the name of the Lord. Amazing faith, says Jesus, is in command. We don't sit in authority over him. We don't get to summon him and demand things from him. We pray and we plead, say the word, Jesus, and my servant would be healed. My pain will go. My sorrow will end. But we cannot demand him to act. Amazing faith says, I am not worthy. And amazing faith says, Jesus is in command. And as we struggle with the times when Jesus doesn't answer us how we wish, just as we finish, notice this about Jesus. Notice what he is doing with this great authority that he has. We haven't got time, I'm afraid, to look at this in detail. But as we close, just see Jesus' powerful, authoritative mercy. A mercy that overcomes death. Love to spend a bit more time thinking about the servant. But remember, it's about him. We've just forgotten about him. At the end, Jesus restores him to his health. A mercy that is so powerful it can overcome death. And there are many comparisons between that servant physically and us spiritually. You can think about them on your own if you want, but there is a sense in which we are spiritually dead. The servant himself doesn't appeal to Jesus. The servant himself doesn't seem to have a voice. Someone else acts for him. Isn't that how we all come to faith? The Holy Spirit acts for us to give us new hearts that we might then believe. Powerful mercy that Jesus is displaying here overcomes death, not just physical, but spiritual death. And is a powerful mercy that overcomes exclusion. Because the centurion is a non-Jew. He doesn't belong to the people of God. And even worse, he's serving with the occupying forces of Rome. He knows that he is an outcast. Jesus, I don't deserve to have you come into my home. You and I, you can't have that kind of fellowship with me. I'm an outcast. But what does Jesus say at the end, verse 9? I have not found such faith in all of Israel. Jesus is saying to the centurion, you are more truly part of Israel than the Jewish people around me. It's like saying to someone who's moved to the UK, you are more British than the British. You belong in this country more than anyone else. 
Let me put it another way. The centurion says to Jesus, I am not worthy to have you in my home. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. But I will welcome you into my home. I will welcome you into my kingdom. I will make you a part of my family. That is how powerful his mercy is. That is how he uses his authority. A mercy that overcomes death and a mercy that overcomes exclusion. And of course, what Jesus did in the life of the servant, in the life of the centurion, he is doing in us. He is powerfully overcoming spiritual death, opening our eyes and our hearts more and more that we might believe more and more in the goodness and glory of Christ. And he is powerfully overcoming our exclusion. He is drawing us further and further in into his family, into his home, into his kingdom. So yes, you can trust his power. Yes, he is in command. And if ever you doubt it, remember what he is doing in your life, making you more alive in him, powerfully overcoming death and overcoming exclusion, drawing you closer and closer to him. That is how he is using his authority for those who, like the centurion, say to Jesus, I am not worthy. Moment of quiet, and then I'm going to pray. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Gracious God, please grow that kind of faith in us. The faith that recognizes our unworthiness. A faith that recognizes the authority and command of Christ. And a faith that rejoices in his powerful mercy towards us. A faith that keeps us joyful even though we know we are unworthy. Heavenly Father, we pray by your Spirit to make us more like the centurion. In Jesus' name, amen.